Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24. Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new Redefining Security podcast. Have you ever thought that we are selling cybersecurity insincerely, buying it indiscriminately, and deploying it ineffectively? Perhaps we are. So let's look at how we can organize a successful InfoSec program that integrates people, process, technology, and culture to drive growth and protect business value. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at www.pentera.io. EdgeScan offers continuous vulnerability intelligence as a service accurately identifying vulnerabilities and exposures across the full stack. All threats are verified by cybersecurity experts, providing exploitable risk and remediation guidance, virtually false positive free. Learn more at edgescan.com. Everyone, thanks for uh, joining me here. You're very welcome on a new Redefining Cybersecurity podcast here on ITSB Magazine. I'm actually joined today by uh, my co-founder, Marco. We're going to have a good conversation looking at uh, uh, the role of cybersecurity in business and how different aspects of things in the public sector and in the legal space uh, can help shape the security program in a different way that maybe you aren't thinking. And we have uh, a great guest on, Marco and Andy Purdy. He's the uh, CSO for Huawei Technologies. Andy, thanks for being on. You're welcome. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Sean. It's going to be a great story. I can't wait to learn I more. <laughs> so, um, Andy, you were, you were starting to share with us kind of your background. Um, can you give us a view into what you've done in the public sector and, and in the legal space uh, leading up to your role? Sure. Well, I have a lengthy legal career that included roles as a federal prosecutor, congressional investigator, investigating the uh, Kennedy assassination, special counsel to the House Ethics Committee, uh, counsel to the Senate Impeachment Trial Committee. Uh, And then my work with the United States Sentencing Commission involved both uh, individual crimes that could relate to technology and and cybersecurity, of course, as well as corporate offenses. And so it was the effort to try to find more information about uh, what is important about different aspects of cyber criminality uh, that should be considered by judges uh, in determining what the sentence should be for individual criminals. The concept was uh, similar, of in individuals who commit similar crimes should, should face similar sentences. But that was together with my work uh, in terms of corporate compliance under the sentencing guidelines where organizations would get significant benefits in criminal prosecutions for misconduct of employees if they put in place strong internal compliance programs. So it's interesting that compliance, which is sort of a dirty word in cybersecurity because risk is the focus, 
is in fact an important aspect uh, of this. So, so the work that I was doing that, to try to understand individual uh, cyber crimes uh, led me to organize a conference on behalf of the Sentencing Commission, brought together a number of major cybersecurity leaders, including the late Howard Schmidt. And after uh, President Bush formed uh, the effort to, to launch the U.S. National Strategy to Secure Cyberspace, Howard Schmidt called me up and asked me to come join the White House there to work on that strategy. So that was early uh, 2002. So 20 years later, I'm still in cybersecurity. The last 10, I've been involved uh, with Huawei with a number of interesting roles in between. But uh, I was recruited to join Huawei by John Suffolk, who's still our global uh, chief security and privacy officer. I'm in charge of the USA Cybersecurity and Privacy. Uh, the idea was and has continued to be to try to promote a safer cyberspace and try to promote uh, an effective internal program of, of risk governance and risk management regarding cybersecurity and privacy. And so our, or, our organizing a global platform for governance for cybersecurity and privacy for our company, then with similar kinds of operations within the United States, for example, where you would have individuals in the different components that are relevant to cybersecurity and privacy, which could be uh, IT, uh, legal, human relations, training people, um, and more technical people in, in, in sales and uh, meeting standards and regulatory requirements, meeting customer requirements, would all be part of a committee. And we have a global committee where you have the president of, uh, of one of our global organizations, uh, consumer carrier enterprise would all be on this global committee and their job is to maintain a, a, a global uh, risk governance process where the requirements are developed by experts, the requirements are communicated, and then their internal systems such as self-checks and audits to make sure the individual uh, responsibilities are being met. So it might be requirements to train your average person once or twice a year, it might be special requirements to train your technical people more often. Technical need to have certain certification, certain requirements for the protection of data uh, consistent with the particular country in which we're do, doing business uh, and the particular requirements of, of, of customers. So a combination of risk management and compliance where you are continually evolving what your requirements are it's to be consistent with your business objectives and your risk environment, but you have systems in place so that the bosses who don't need to be experts have some capability to know whether you're doing what you need to do to manage risk, to meet the requirements of our customers, to meet the requirements of, of governments and the countries in which we do business. Uh, it's a mouthful, Andy, and uh, it generates a ton of questions for me. <laughs> let me, let me uh, start here. Well, if you have a difficult question, we'll be out of time. So <laughs> That's right. That's right. Let me see. I'll try to pile two or three on at once. Now, I, I'm just thinking how that, how what you just described might look uh, or how it might look differently in other organizations. Because I have conversations with others where we talk about um, application security. And there's a, there's a dedicated AppSec team that kind of partners up with uh, the DevOps team and maybe an IT kind of sits in the middle to kind of make, make sure that all, all operates properly. And that's kind of its own little faction, its own little committee. And then we, and I've had conversations where HR and security build a relationship or HR or uh, legal and security build a relationship. But I've not heard a global committee be formed. And I'm just wondering, do those other 
roles did, does the appsec team still exist in in the committee view or how how does that look well you, you have the details at the operational level certain details are global so for example on, on the u.s committee and on the global committee in the case of the global committee the president of our global consumer business is on the committee the president of our enterprise business the president of uh, of our of our network business um and so they have certain requirements within their responsibility. So for example, certain products require common criteria, certain devices require in, in the US, you'd have to be tested for RF for your, your mobile devices. Um, and so you've got a lot of different standards around the world that the different business groups and the different departments and sections within the business groups have to identify what are the standards, what are the best practices, what needs to be done, so they populate the requirements at a global level and then within individual regions and individual countries like the EU, you have to understand what are the particular requirements in that area. And so that's why, for example, for privacy, the, the company has basically tried to follow uh, the European Union GDPR, the, 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 their general rule on data privacy as a company generally. So we don't have to do any more instances of many different things all over the world that you can have as much commonality as you can. And then certain places you might have a higher risk requirement. So all the kinds of things you're thinking are just that we're a large company, we're in 170 uh, countries. And so we have to make sure that the requirements of the regulatory bodies of the customers, and we have our own requirements to provide some consistency in terms of cybersecurity and privacy. So then we also have, in addition to that, so you've got all those requirements and there has to be verification that go up the chain, you know, kind of a red, yellow, green kind of thing as to whether the requirements are being met. But we also have like a separate business unit, the internal cybersecurity lab that does testing of the products for vulnerabilities. And so we pay for hire uh, experts tools to look for, because of course, no single tool can find all the vulnerabilities to look for the vulnerabilities and when there are problems, it goes back to the people whose job it is to, to, to meet the requirements and their internal KPIs have to be key performance indicators have to be married up with their departments, with the business group and so forth. So that if something gets bumped back from our internal cybersecurity lab, they've got to fix it the first time where if they, if the problem occurs again, they're going to hit problems. So you're creating that internal self-check, that internal audits, and we have the the, the 9,000 audits in, in, in certain business experiences, certain uh, companies, certain customers would, would require certain kinds of audits. So it's it's a complicated thing, uh, but I think it's one that uh, we've had great success with. And uh, our challenges are the same as, as any big company, the same as any company in whatever the business group is. Uh, and we have the larger global challenges of, of which you're aware. So. Uh, promoting a safer cyberspace, more accountability, more transparency, which we continue to advocate for is, is at the heart of what we're trying to do. So it sounds to me you're running a country, almost like a government form, <laughs> where there is a lot of check and balance and you know, coordinate. And then it, there is also the feedback that comes maybe from the business, from you know every line of product development and so forth. I mean, it sounds like very complex. I'm not kidding by saying that. I'm wondering maybe your past as uh, <laughs> working at the White House coming into place in putting this. Well, and, and then when I worked at Homeland Security, where I was in charge of National Cybersecurity Division and, and U.S. CERT for two years, um, and and 
Uh, I was the DHS representative of the Committee on National Security Systems. So, you know, I, I had some perspective. And it's interesting you, you mentioned governments because um, the notion of accountability, for example, in the United States, the United States government, hopefully President Biden's executive order from about a year ago, hopefully there will be a greater emphasis on having accountability for major leaders within government agencies to meet cybersecurity and privacy requirements and to communicate if their budgets don't have the adequate resources to, to meet the requirements. Because to some extent, it's kind of like, oh, you got to meet OMB requirements. And then, you know, NIST is doing a great job to come up with the standards. Uh, but there really hasn't been accountability of the government leaders like, like OPM breach from, from some years ago. It hasn't really said, okay, the leaders of the agencies, the leaders of the department, you got to push responsibility down, but you've got to make, and that, that's the beauty of, of, of our system. And God knows it's not perfect. And we're open to communicating more and more about what we do and how we do it and why and, and get guidance from other folks. But, you know, our system, it's up to the head of the consumer division to make sure that the people down the line throughout the world are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And that they're rewarded, the departments are rewarded when they meet the requirements and they're disincentivized when they're not. So your your bonus, your rewards, your salaries, your promotion are all tied into doing what you're supposed to be doing. And by having independent checks, separation of duties concept, which I'm sure you're familiar with, you make sure the people that are supposed to do it are different than the people who are going to evaluate whether you do it. And that way you have some ability to tell who's accountable. But it's not simply a question of saying, for example, oh, we need a cybersecurity expert on the board of directors, which seems to be a, a frequent conversation. That's not what it's about. It's about making sure that folks understand what their responsibilities are and are going to be held accountable for it in a consequential way. I actually find it really fascinating, this correlation and between how the government run and how the business run and how they both kind of can learn from each other. It's, not, it's still a business, even if you're running a country. It's still technically, you know, a business of running the country. So, Sean, I, I think this is leading to the business of security. I, I'm just inviting you here. I'm opening the door for you. <laughs> yeah, because you, you touched on it earlier, Andy, just the the communications and you don't need the, the cybersecurity expert on the board or in the executive staff. But you have this committee that sounds like they, I'm so oversimplifying, I'm sure, translating between the business and the compliance slash risk slash controls that are required. How, how do you see that happening? What's your role specifically in making sure that that happens? Well, um, in each country, as I said, we have a committee that does that kind of work within the country. Um, so making sure that we are following the requirements, for example, uh, the if, if we have a contract and this is a little more in the past than, than in the future. But if we have a contract where we've sold equipment and then we might service the equipment, that making sure that we are following the requirements for accessing the customer's network or system pursuant to the agreed upon rules. So, for example, uh, if the customer were to say, OK, here's the password for you guys. So whoever you have, whoever men or women are, are servicing it, they will use this password. No. That's a non-starter for us. You know, it may be easier for the customer to have only one password, but we need the separate login credentials for each individual. And that's part of our responsibility, of course, when if an employee leaves or responsibilities change, the, those, those privileges have to be uh, stripped away. They have to be changed. They have to be taken back. Um, 
And so sometimes that takes a little more effort. It, it costs a little more money. Um, and so when there are major problems, you know, we would be communicating up. Uh, and, and that's the bottom line is the those issues that aren't resolved consistent with what's been agreed to need to get escalated. Those situations where, you know, maybe a company's had a major data breach. And so, you know, they need to hire some outside investigators. Maybe they've got to pay something. So there needs to be some decision making. And if certain things change, um, it, and then certain resources are necessary to have more people to meet the require the requirements, not just in terms of doing the business but from the cybersecurity and privacy perspective. That has to be escalated to a higher level for the decision makers. There's, and you know they own the risk, just as they own the risk in everything in the organization. And if they decide, well, we don't want to spend the money on X, Y, or Z, then then that's the decision. But you know, we who are teeing that up, of course, companies around the world. We have to make clear, this is the consequence. Here's the choice. Here's what you do. Here's what best practices are, or here's what the standard is. And if you're going to do this, you're going to be outside of the, you know, the the, the mainstream of what you're supposed to do. And you, it's on you. You have to take the responsibility. And are there, this may seem like a silly question as well, but I'm going to ask it anyway. The the, the budget to do what, do what you do and, and the, the global organization do to do what it does, there's a point where it just doesn't make sense to put more money into mitigating risk and implementing controls and and then auditing all that stuff and reporting on it. And, and I'm just wondering, is the budget set and you kind of mani manipulate the risk within the budget or do you find that it's regular? We, we've exceeded the risk level. We need more budget, uh, even though we had a, a set amount previously. Well, it's really communication and it's it, it's continuous learning, it's continuous improvement. So if the situation, if the risk environment changes or there's some change in business objectives, which affect, affect the risk environment, if there's an impact on the resources, that has to be communi communicated up, up the chain so they can decide, are they going to accept the risk or they're not going to provide the additional resources? Obviously, nobody has... Nobody has un unlimited funds, and and you know we spend an awful lot like large companies do uh, to meet these requirements. Um, and kind of the evolution. So, for example, a major evolution now that many companies around the world are doing is toward a zero trust concept, and that's that's very important to make sure that you have the funding, you have the technical capabilities to have that kind of continuous validation of just about everything, um, so that you can manage the risk appropriately. I like to. Kind of keep on this, but uh, also talk about scalability. Like you, you mentioned change, and you have a very complex machine that sounds like it's working very well. Is that something that you think is unique to a multinational company like IUA or, or other multinational company, or is a model for cybersecurity that could be scaled down to any other size company? Well, I think the idea is that regardless of the size of your organization, whether it's governmental or private, there needs to be some kind of an enterprise-wide capability to manage risk and to articulate and develop and over time improve the requirements, understanding the threats, the vulnerabilities and consequences, understanding the business objectives, and need to push down of the different components of those who contribute to managing that risk. And, and most of it's generated by them. Here's what the requirements are. Here are the best practices. Maybe we hire an outside consultant to recommend we use this standard or that standard um, uh, or this, uh, this process, or maybe this kind of a role we're not going to play because the risk is too great. It can't be managed effectively. Um, so I, I think it's 
any organization needs some kind of an enterprise-wide, you know, risk management. You see, for example, in the in the session, uh, coincidentally, that that NIST is taking at the time of recording this, NIST Cybersecurity Framework uh, Conference to develop a framework uh, 2.0. Uh, they're talking about the fact, of course, that there are special resources they call profiles or even small businesses, they can they can access this information that's available on the NIST website so they can see how they can manage risk when you have relatively little people and relatively little expertise. But what are the kinds of basic things they need to know, some of which maybe they can contract out? And and, and they've got profiles for manufacturing and, and I think financial services and, and many others that can give very good guidance to a company. But sometimes, frankly, in, in the discussions and conferences and sessions and exhibitions, uh, around the world, it, it 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 seems like maybe it's just a question of focus, or and maybe it's just assumed. But the idea of having an enterprise wide, the leadership of the company has to have some mechanism to manage risk, and to know what the requirements are, to know whether it's being followed, and to allocate or make decisions about allocating resources appropriately. To me, that's a given. Yeah, oh, boy, so many directions to go here. Let, let me ask this. Uh, how involved are you and these committees in, uh, I guess what I'm, a lot of conversations I have, I'm going to back up a little bit. A lot of conversations I have, it's security comes in and kind of plugs the holes, reports on where the current risk is and uh, tries to help mitigate what's already been built. AppSec tries to help maybe shift some of those things left, but I think generally on the, broader operational view, uh, security is kind of left to pick up the pieces after the fact. And I'm just wondering how, how involved are you in deciding or helping to determine this is the strategy we're going to take from a business perspective. These are the types of systems we're going to use and the way, the way we're going to architect it, the types of data we're going to create, collect, store, share, whatever, and perhaps reduce some exposure before it even becomes a problem for security to then have to mitigate that exposure? Well, I certainly don't think of it as picking up the pieces. Um, I think the culture that I think we've developed over time uh, has been that, let, let's say you're talking about a new business opportunity and, and, and new products. So uh, right now uh, we've created specialized teams, for example, in, uh, in ports for the automation of ports. And so the security is part of that. So it's not a question of they do whatever the hell they want and then you bring in the security people. It's like the considerations of cybersecurity and privacy are part of the development of what they're going to do and how they're going to do it. And the articulation of requirements is not led by us, but we, we help inform what those are and help inform the ability to uh, assess them, to do self-checks and other kinds of uh, uh, informal or formal audits uh, to meet those requirements. But also part of it is in terms of when you talk about picking up the pieces kind of implies a, an incident or some kind of a response. So we work closely with the business groups for, of course, and most companies do this. So I'm not saying, you know, we're special in this uh, work together to understand, okay, here are the crisis management, here are the incident response capabilities. So making sure there's training and tabletop exercises. Okay. And, and the business of course is saying, well, this is kind of bad stuff that could happen. You know, we've seen it in other companies, maybe not publicized, maybe publicized. And so the idea of, okay, when something happens, setting up the crisis team is usually led by the business to figure out what happened, where did it happen, how serious it is, knowing exactly when to work with the customers 
to make sure, you know, that they've got to be really managing it to make sure the legal requirements for reporting are being met by the customer. And to the extent we have such requirements are being met by us. Um, and so that training and also, of course, the after action that when some stuff hits the fan talking about, OK, this is what happened, investigating the cause of what happened um, and looking at how we respond, but also looking at what else could have happened. Maybe something really big almost happened. So looking at what came close to happening and then coming up and reporting up to management. This is what happened. This is the lessons learned. This is what we need to do different. Here's how we need to change the processes. So it, it really is very much of a very much of a team approach. And, you know, it's a continuous kind of thing where you're trying to improve, trying to learn lessons because, you know, bad stuff happens. So continuous learning, continuous improvement. Um, how, how much do you look at from either planning and investment perspective uh, to say, this is the direction of technology. This is the direction of the market. This is the direction of government and policy. And in order, like ESG, for example, is a big topic. Um, these are th big things that are moving that don't impact us today, but we have to prepare for to ensure that our organization stays resilient, that our committee stays resilient, that our security teams stay resilient. How, how do you balance that? Well, it's it's a tricky thing, of course. I mean, you know, we, I think, invested $22 billion in research and development last year in the top five in the world. And part, part of that is as we're developing new technologies, uh, trying to develop greater capabilities using, for example, of course, big data analytics, artificial intelligence, augmented intelligence, to, to try to have greater abilities to uh, identify risk in advance, to detect concerning activities. Of course, you've seen a lot of the publicity in the U.S. government trying to increase the sharing of information among organizations where something uh, may not obviously be of broader concern, but to start sharing sooner, because if somebody connects the dots, you might realize that that little thing is of greater concern. And so that's why we participate in information sharing with the various certs around the world and, and so forth. Um, but trying to improve the capabilities for, for prevention, for detecting, uh, for isolating and, and mitigating, minimizing the effect of the damage, because the bad guys are going to get in, bad stuff's going to happen, but trying to mitigate the damage from it um, and, and learn from the little things so you can help prevent uh, the big things. All right, I guess I'm going to keep going with, the, with my pendulum. First, I brought you on the smaller scale. Now I'm going to bring you on the bigger scale, which is, of course, your company works with a ton of government. You're in the communication business, so a lot of policy, a lot of balancing and politics, I will say. At how, the importance of collaboration at a global level for cybersecurity in the interest of each country. I don't know, I'm being idealistic here, but this is just who I am. Where, where are we going? Are we on a good point? Is that more we can do? What's your view on that? Well, it's an exciting time, and, and, and frankly, it's been pretty exciting for quite a while. Maybe it'd be good if it was a little <laughs> less exciting. Right. Uh, but, um, you know, some of, the, some of the cyber attacks that have taken place, and some of them are almost two years ago now, SolarWinds, Microsoft Exchange Server, for example, um, reminding us of the capabilities of malicious cyber actors, uh, what they can do, what they can do without us being able to quickly identify what they do. Uh, refreshing the fact that we have to assume that they're going to get in and the fact they are in. Um, 
and and frankly, and this gets a little bit to to what you were just talking about is um, I, I think there's a growing recognition that the concept of trusted suppliers uh, may go by the wayside because if by that you mean you use do less scrutiny of what they do and how they do it, uh, I would suggest that I think that's a mistake uh, because the bad guys can hack into the good guys. And so if they hack into the good guys and they're proceeding throughout their their systems and networks and those they interact with, they then have the ability to do, you know, national security level intelligence gathering to launch disruptive attacks, to steal data and send it someplace else. Um, and so that's part of why the, the zero trust is so important because it, obviously the idea of a perimeter in cybersecurity is, is, is long good. Uh, but since the, President Biden's executive order in, in 2021, there's been a greater, more widespread recognition uh, of the importance of, of zero trust. And uh, I think that's that's a very good thing. I think you see the work after some of these cyber attacks of the European Union, for example, and obviously Germany, part of the European Union, the work they've been doing to try to understand the five, 5G and beyond threat landscapes and how to detect better, uh, how to evaluate uh, products. I know I, I saw something that a month or two ago that, that Nokia put out where somebody was accusing them of stealing data or sending it back. And they put out a statement, which I certainly could relate to, where they said, well, they don't have the ability to do that. They, they sell the products, the carriers control it. Um, and, you know, the, the, they don't own that anymore. And, you know, to, to, to that, I say, that's a perfect example of something that we certainly believe that's true. But if somebody believes that's not true, whether it's us or Nokia or our competitors or whatever, then somebody needs to investigate and do some real work to find out. Because if if those assumptions are wrong, we need to make greater measures to be able to find out if this bad stuff is happening or, or, or can happen. And and frankly, when you know we look at something like and and you know we won't have time to go into privacy much today, but you see the discussions two years ago about TikTok and WeChat, the discussions this year about, about WeChat. Two years ago, the focus was really on ownership and control, which is a typical approach the U.S. government understandably takes to things. Now, in the recent New York Times article about WeChat, it sounds like, excuse me, about TikTok, it sounds like, and I don't know if this is true, but it sounds like they're negotiating with U.S. government for a possible national security agreement, which is the idea of putting in risk mitigation measures overseen by the U.S. government to make sure the data, which was one of the major issues of, of, of the WeChat situation, the data is not going to anybody it's not supposed to go to, whether it's to China or anybody else. So ownership and control is fine, but we need to have some idea and hopefully some ability to greater ability to audit companies. And, you know, we're happy to participate in that to find out whether the privacy data protection policies are not being followed because we want to find that stuff out before there's a giant data breach or before we find out if all this bad stuff has, has happened. And I've heard some reports, the U.S. government's not sure if the data has been sent back or whatever. Well, we need greater ability to know and to hold accountable companies and organizations, whether it's social media platforms and whatever, that have so much data. If we really care about privacy, we're going to do a whole lot more than we've been doing in this country. Yeah, and talk about sustainability. I mean, if there's a serious issue there, it's not that, that an organization isn't going to survive for very long, right? So, uh, and, and perhaps, I don't know, maybe markets change and, and things change because of that at a, at a broader scale. Well, some so, of the big data breaches, you see the stock plummet and then eventually the stock comes back and then the company's yeah. okay. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, but if there are government sanctions because of something, 
Well, that's why the European Union is so skeptical of, uh, you know, coming up with a new uh, privacy shield provisions. Right. Yeah, the whole sovereign cloud. I mean, there's a lot of lot of fun stuff to talk about there. As as we wrap, Andy, um, maybe just a final thought from you. It's another thing I'd like to to explore a bit is the the concept of defining and measuring success. So maybe from from the committee's perspective, how how do they know that their efforts are making a difference? Well, I think the the process. The combination of things like are we uh, being certified to the standards we're supposed to be supposed to be certified to for different products and services um, is the um, are the self checks producing the kind of demonstrated evidence that the people are doing what they're supposed to be doing are the audits that are done showing compliance are the evaluations by our independent cybersecurity lab are the problems being identified and fixed. The feedback from our customers, the feedback from our customers showing that we are successfully, with them of course, successfully meeting the regulatory requirements, the contractual requirements, um, because we get burned financially if we don't meet those requirements. If we do really bad stuff, it's going to hurt our reputation and our ability to do business uh, is, is going to be devastated. So, so this would all have a, a, a terrible, terrible impact. I think part of the, the reality and 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 then this cybersecurity framework workshop is talking about this. The metrics about about success is tricky, but metrics that are saying, okay, what is the risk profile of a company, and where do they need to go to a better risk profile given their business objectives, and so what needs to happen, and are those things being ha- happening along the way so that there's some kind of accountability, and that's something that you can facilitate with contractual requirements, maybe disclosure requirements with government. You certainly want to minimize prescriptive uh, regulations by government because I don't think that helps facilitate the kind of risk management that can be most effective. The reason I ask that question is oftentimes I hear uh, the MTTX, right? Time to respond, time to recover, time to detect, all those types of things. Certainly it's from a, from a SOC perspective, response perspective. But I don't know, and vulnerability management is another area that, that we've tend to wrap metrics around. And it seems like just by being busy, we think we're being successful. And, and uh, I think there are other ways to, I, I like, I like how you use the checks and balances, right? Are we, are we defining the audits or the things we need to care about in a certain way? And are the audits producing the results and response? So it's the, 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 the challenge response uh, aspect of that. I, th- I think some of the supply chain work that, that NIST and CISA and others around the world have been doing has been very, very important. Uh, and transparency is a critical part of that. And I think the global community and, and in the U.S., we need to find what kinds of transparency can companies like us or other companies make available to regulators or customers so they can tell before bad things happen that that the requirements are being met. The software bill of materials idea that I was part of that, that group at NIST that helped develop it prior to the, uh, uh, the, it being referenced significantly in the, uh, in the president's executive order. Something like the software bill of materials is, is very, very important. So it gives customers a greater ability and government stakeholders a greater ability to know what's the stuff, what is the software that's in our systems? And then the vulnerabilities, it makes vulnerability management. If you have machine readable, uh, software bill of materials it can help address the risk much more quickly. So these are a combination of things that can help. But, but trying to have collaboration on R&D, how can there be greater transparency? How can there be greater capabilities to know if the risk is greater than we think it is? 
I love it. I love it. And I, I could talk to you for hours, I think, Andy, but uh, I don't want to get in the way of, uh, of a dinner that uh, is coming <laughs> at some point. So um, I think uh, I think we'll, we'll wrap here with, uh, with a thank you for me, and I'm sure Marco enjoyed this as well. Uh, great insight and good to get your perspective uh, coming from the different angles that you've, you've come from through to uh, your role there at Huawei. So you're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. EdgeScan offers continuous vulnerability intelligence as a service, accurately identifying vulnerabilities and exposures across the full stack. All threats are verified by cybersecurity experts, providing exploitable risk and remediation guidance, virtually false positive free. Learn more at edgescan.com. Pentera, the leader in automation security validation, allows organizations to continuously test the integrity of all cybersecurity layers by emulating real-world attacks at scale to pinpoint the exploitable vulnerabilities and prioritize remediation towards business impact. Learn more at www.pentera.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Redefining Security Podcast. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Insights, solutions, and networking all come together at RSA Conference. Join a global cybersecurity community at rsaconference.com forward slash ITSP MAG24.